Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. I'd like to say I had this episode scheduled for a while, but I didn't. We are picking up on an urgent basis with Dr. Megan Ranney. She is one of those docs who is doing the most important work we can be doing right now on multiple fronts. She has been, has been, will be, and continues to be one of the leading advocates helping to drive the narrative, helping to drive the discussion around gun violence and gun violence prevention in the United States, particularly around doing research to look for the underlying issues behind gun violence, but also being one of those voices that motivates others to get involved, to engage, to start to try to move the needle. Her background is, just take it from me, it's incredible, and I cannot wait to talk with her. We're doing this on a sort of a pressing basis because unfortunately in the last seven days, there have been several mass shootings that we as a nation have had to go through together and see evolve and struggle with and grieve over. And we'd been talking about her coming on the show in a couple of months, and I decided we got to do it sooner. And this is going to be a really interesting conversation. Before we get to the show, please check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show. You can email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find Explore the Space on all of your favorite podcast platforms. We're on all of them. Please make sure to subscribe. We've got tons of content coming. And please, if you have the opportunity for this podcast or any other podcast that you like, take the opportunity to leave a rating and a review. That is the number one driver for other people to find the shows that you're enjoying and learning from and engaging with. Megan Ranney is, as I said just a moment ago, one of those people who is doing the right work. She's also my kind of leader. And the reason she's my kind of leader is not only is she doing the work from the legislative front, the administrative front, the advocacy front. She leads from the front. She just finished an overnight shift in the emergency department, and she is still taking the time to come and talk with us about something that I know is important to her. It's important to me. It's important to all of us. Megan, thank you so much for coming on. It's totally my pleasure. So you just finished an overnight shift in the ER, and I want to start from there. As a physician, as an emergency physician, you've been doing this work for a while, When you know you're going to work and you know you're working overnight or any shift, how much is the kind of like pregame talk as you're driving into work, as you're getting your stuff arranged, as you're getting your workstation set up, how much is here are the steps that I need to move through when a patient comes across the recess room or the trauma bay who's been shot? How much of that work are you processing in your mind around being physically, mentally, and emotionally ready to deal with gun trauma? It's a really interesting question. I'll be honest, at this point, um, I've been practicing for about 15 years, um, all of it in a level one trauma center. I really don't spend a lot of time thinking about it ahead of time any more than I think about any other disease or injury that comes across my doorsteps, right? Um When I talk nationally about this, I talk about the amount of time that we spend as physicians or other healthcare professionals prepping for that resuscitation. I mean, by the time you make it through an emergency medicine residency, the way that you deal with a GSW is like so drilled into you because you've seen so many of them. And and that moment of the resuscitation is honestly a little bit 
wrote, and it's that way for a reason, right? We know the value of checklists and the trauma resource is in many ways a checklist. And, and, and there's, you know, the branch points and the decision points and, and you just know them. I think the thing that I spend time prepping for or pondering afterwards is really much more of the mental and emotional um, impact. In the moment, it's taking care of an injury like any other, but it's it's kind of what happens afterwards that we so rarely deal with. And, and it's really one of the reasons that I was driven to, to work in this space was because I saw the effect on, on me and my colleagues and, of course, on survivors and families and, and communities. So I want to um, drill into a word that you just said. I want to talk about effect. I want to pull that out. Mm-hmm. We know, obviously, someone gets shot. The, they're going to, you know, it's, it's, it's a fight to resuscitate them so that they don't die. But you also have to deal. We also have to be conscious of the effect that that bullet is going to have on the team who is trying to resuscitate them, the family, and then the patient, if they survive dealing with life after. So let's start though, from the perspective of the physician. And this is sort of an unusual take from us to do on this show because we, we generally try to focus on that connection between people who are seeking healthcare and people who are providing it. But in this situation, I think it's really important for two reasons. Number one, it's important that people understand that we don't romanticize this stuff. This is really, really difficult work. But number two is it's the, it's the fuel that I hope will connect us to why you are so important and the work that you do is so important is to get people to become active is to get them to say, this is insane and we have to do something different. So let's talk about effect from the physician perspective after an overnight shift in the ED, even if you don't see a gunshot victim, just knowing that it's out there and that you're going to have to work through those checklists and work through that emotional, mental, physical strain, what does that do? To, to me as a provider? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, gosh, over time, it's exhausting. Um, it's that drip, drip, drip of preventable um, injury. And again, that knowing kind of all the long-term effects that happen afterwards. And I think that one of the most difficult things about gunshot wounds for us um, as providers is this sense of their inevitability. Right. Wow. None of us learn about preventing gunshot wounds in med school. None of us talk about it during residency. We, we talk again all about the resuscitation and That's we get right. really good at it. We do. But, but, but it just feels like, well, it's just something that happens. As we you said that, that really resonated. <laughs> I trained in, I went to medical school in Houston, Texas and the, and the hospital okay. that I was at most of the time was, I mean, it was, we saw a ton of, of gunshot trauma around the clock there wasn't conversation around prevention. As you said that, I was like, oh my gosh, she, you're right. It wasn't even on the table that we can prevent it. It's let's just get really good at it. Right. Which is crazy. Like, I, you know, I know <laughs> you're a hospitalist, but, but you don't think about other diseases um, or injuries that way. If you're yeah. taking care of a geriatric patient who comes in with a fall, you're talking about how to keep them from falling again. If That's you have right. someone that comes in with a heart attack, you're talking about how to keep them from coming back with another MI. I mean, heck, if they come in with angina and you're ruling them out, you're talking about how to prevent it. That's right. That's and right. That's how that conversation has just been missing here. So why is it missing? So I think that's really important. I finished medical school in 2003. I, I can't speak to how developed the curriculum is around it, but I think that you just gave me an epiphany moment that, that's a really interesting comparison. We deal with heart disease. We deal with 
we deal with hip fractures. We deal with all these different things. We started a trauma hospitals co-management program at my institution. So I, we see people who have been shot and aside from trying to identify social determinants of health the best that we can, there's no real deep dive into, you know, how we're going to prevent somebody from, from being shot or someone who uh-huh. may have a gun from inadvertently or intentionally shooting somebody. <laughs> Did you have that epiphany at some point that it come on gradually? Cause it feels like that's been the driver for you. Yeah, that has totally, you're, it, well, A, you're really um, observant. <laughs> yeah, that, that is my driver. Um, for me, it was a little bit of gradual and a little bit of, I, I think like for many of us, those inflection points or those moments that just crystallize your, uh-huh. your thinking. Um, you know, I, I did my residency in emergency medicine. I did a fellowship, um, so two extra years of training in injury prevention um, with a focus on violence prevention. But at that point, I was told that I couldn't talk about gun violence. Um, Wait, it was, I'm sorry. Say that again. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, I was told that I couldn't talk about or do research on gun violence. By whom? Oh, my gosh. Probably 10 different people from across the country. So, so not my not my fellowship director. He's wonderful and always been supportive. But um, now is this a f- Were you exposed to this as like official policy? Because we know what happens when there's a proposed physician gag rule for anything else. And there's a, there's a correct outcry. I wasn't aware that there was ever a formal informal gag rule around discussing gun violence and gun violence prevention for physicians. So it's interesting, right? If you actually look back, you'll find that most medical societies were really quiet for a long time. Um, and, and there was very little research being done, um, really since the Dickey amendment was passed in the late nineties, especially for us in emergency medicine. Um, it was some of our leaders, uh, whose funding was taken away after the Dickey Amendment was passed in 1996, which for listeners that aren't familiar, it is um, the Dickey Amendment basically said that no funding could be used by the CDC to promote or advocate for gun control. And of course, CDC can't advocate for anything anyhow. But when that amendment was passed, um, all the money was taken away from the CDC that they had been spending on firearm injury prevention research. And soon thereafter, um, money was also removed from the NIH that had been being spent on firearm injury prevention research. And so for someone, you know, at that point, early 2000s, early to late 2000s, I was young, just starting my career. I knew that I wanted to do injury prevention research. And folks said to me, you talking about gun violence is is career suicide. You know, you'll never get funding. You're going to never be able to have an impact. It's much better to focus on the things that are fundable. So let's um, take and- that as a starting point then, because I want to I want to look into your list of accomplishments now and then think about where we're heading. You're the yeah. chief research officer and co-founder of Affirm, which is a nonpartisan and not-for-profit organization that is designed to work on funding and disseminating firearm injury prevention research. You are on any number of boards. You were just named Physician of the Year for the state of Rhode Island. How do we get from your career is going to lawn dart into the ground if you take this on to now you are one of the most important people we have in our profession. And I would argue one of the most important we have in public discourse right now around gun violence prevention. How do we get from A to B? Well, so first of all, you are too kind. I'm part of a group of people that have been working on this for for a while. Um, But how did we get there? We got there by talking and by being persistent. Okay. Um, We got there by, also a lot of national tragedies. Yes. Um, Sandy Hook was one of them. I think that was a really big turning point for us in medicine. And 
you know, at the point when Sandy Hook happened, there were like 20, 30 folks across the country who had ever done research um, on, on firearm injury. And after Sandy Hook, a lot of us said, whoa, you know, we're not, who says that we need to be silent about this? This is crazy. There were 20 little kids that just lost their lives and six school teachers. And um, let's, let's talk about this. And so that was kind of a beginning and we all started to talk and then medical societies started coming on board and more and more people, more and more physicians started kind of hearing this message of it being a public health problem. And then tragedies after tragedy after tragedy has continued to um, dominate the media cycle. And I think with each one, there've been more and more people for whom it's been a tipping point. And, and I just, I and many others just won't give up. Um, I'm not willing to have this be something that my kids live in fear of or my community lives in fear of or honestly that any community lives in fear of. And I think for a long time, folks dismiss this as a problem of inner cities. Um, and there's, we could talk for hours about kind of all of the issues with structural racism and social determinants of health that have been part of us dismissing gun violence as a nation. We can also talk about all the reasons that we don't talk about suicide, which is two thirds of gun deaths and the stigma around mental health. But at the end of the day, it requires us as docs or nurses or psychologists or social workers speaking about the health impact of this. And, and that's what was just so silent for so long. So, you know, how did we get here slowly, but, but persistently? So now let's talk about weight distribution, because there's two things about you that I think are really important with respect to continuing the work. One of them is it's heavy work. And we know that if we've got lots of people underneath, you know, the heavy log that we need to move from one spot to another, we're going to get it done faster. So we need to talk about how do we get more people underneath that weight so that there's less weight to be carried by all and we can go further and we can go faster. The second thing that we need to talk about is something that you said on Twitter a couple of days ago. There was a shooting in Poway, which is just near San Diego, which is where I spent 13 amazing years of my life. It's where my wife grew up. The shooting happened at a Chabad synagogue. It was a couple miles away from where I actually was the night before with some friends. I have friends that live right near there. It was profoundly affecting, just like all of these shootings are, but that one, it, it landed and it was awful. You said okay. on social media the next day, or maybe it was the day after, I don't exactly remember that you're almost, so, and I'm paraphrasing that you're, you're almost more motivated than ever right? That there's people who are despairing. There's people who are sad. You're more motivated than ever. So how do we get people, number one, underneath the log to help move it? Number two, how do we mobilize physicians and nurses to feel like this is a fight that not only is it worth fighting, that we are obligated to, to participate in, to, to stand up and say, it doesn't matter where you stand on the second amendment. It doesn't matter where you stand on owning a gun. What matters is safety. That's our priority. First, do no harm. We have a role to play in this. Mm -hmm. and, and I would add, so kind of certainly to feel that we can stand up and that we're, we have a role to play, but also that there's hope. And yeah. I think that one of the things that's kept people from, from saying anything is, is lack of hope or despair or resignation. Um, and, and one of the things that I think is so important about the work that I and others do is that I really do, I mean, from the bottom of my heart, um, have hope. Um, I have seen shifts begin to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, your answer of how, how do we get folks involved? So certainly, um, you know, with the organization that I'm part of, Affirm Research, 
um, our whole goal is to create hope and to create things that physicians and other healthcare professionals, nurses, et cetera, can, can do um, to help stop shootings before they happen. Also to give us all a voice to share our stories and to help make a difference. So it's not just shouting into the void, but it's doing something that can help to move the needle. And I love your question about carrying the weight because, oh my gosh, Mark, that's, I mean, that's the trick, right? Like that's the thing that's going to change this Right. is all of us showing up together as gun owners or non-gun owners, as military docs or civilians, as rural docs who work in critical access hospitals or uh, trauma nurses who work in a level one. Um, it's all of us coming together to do this that is that is really going to shift the conversation nationally. And it has started to shift the conversation nationally. Um, I, I, I truly meant what I wrote on Twitter, which is that um, I, I do see progress, um, but we aren't quite there yet. It, it needs more of us. We, we are just starting out. I would say yeah. we, are, we are paddling <laughs> I mean, out. I, I had an experience recently that for me was very inspiring along that same vein. And it actually came from the, our, our congressman from my district, the California 5th. I had the opportunity to meet with Congressman Mike Thompson recently. And he wow. is a Democrat. He is a Vietnam veteran, decorated he is a longtime gun owner. He's a hunter. He has guns have been a part of his life and he's very public and he's very transparent about that. And he wrote HR8, which is the bill that has passed the house, which is a bill that would require universal background checks. And his perspective is one of it doesn't matter where you stand on guns. I'm a gun owner. I've they've been a part of my life and my family culture for forever. And we're not in a place where we are going to take guns out of everybody's house, but this is insane. And we have to do something to, as you say, start to do things around the prevention side. And okay. what data we have suggests that universal background checks will drive that work. And it will hopefully at least deter some or separate some people who should not have firearms from having firearms. Having, having somebody with that background and that perspective on guns really helped for me break the false dichotomy that had existed in my mind around if you are interested in gun violence prevention, then you are anti-constitution. I mean, that is so beat into the narrative. It's hard to separate from it. So that for me really resonated. And it's not that I was even looking for it. It just, it really landed on me. And then when we had the conversation around it, and I talked and, and we spoke with and I asked him, you know, what are the major things that can be done to drive this? His answer was really simple. It was, Mark, physicians absolutely have to be part of this. This is not going to happen without America's physicians standing up and saying, this has to be different. And, and oh, that was it. We're done. <laughs> when, when your congressperson says physicians have to stand up, I, I'm going to say we probably have to stand up. <laughs> I love it. And and let him know that we are standing up and That's we're right. right here behind and next to him um, yeah. in, in that quest to really have this treated as a health problem. You know, policy has never been sufficient to solve a public health problem. It's That's often right. a necessary part. There's so much more to it also. And when I do talk to my friends or heck, my co-founder of a firm who are, as you said, gun owners come from a strong culture um, of gun ownership and gun safety. Um, a big part of it is talking about all the stuff that happens beforehand to get someone to that moment where they're ready to shoot themselves or someone else. Mm -hmm. And and we need to talk about those too. Um, yeah. But I, I just, 
heck, you're lucky um, to have such a great guy as, as your congressperson. We're lucky. I, we had I had uh, Mary Brandt from Texas Children's on the podcast a few months ago, and she spoke oh. about what you just said. That moment before something happens, before somebody decides to use a firearm to try to take their own life, which if they do, their chances of the word success is a terrible term to use, but the chance of completing the act is much higher than with most other instruments of suicide. And she spoke about how do we address that moment of impulsivity? And it was really, really impactful for me. The, the all of these things are the, when you speak to experts about this, because so many of us go into this wanting to learn, but also not knowing as much as we know about, I mean, I know a lot about heart disease. I know a lot about hip fractures. I know a lot about community acquired pneumonia. I am learning fast about this stuff from people like you and Mary Brandt and Congressman Thompson. And you, you, these stories land and they land really hard for you though. We can speak strategically, right? We can speak about lofty goals and noble initiatives. Take me through an opportunity where you sat with someone specifically a physician, a nurse, an administrator, and help them perhaps reshape or help them amplify an opinion that they already held. How do we sit down with somebody and help them to, to join, to, to stand up? How, how, what levers do we pull in those conversations in your experience? Oh my goodness. I have so many of those stories, but Good. it's also because it's something that I spend so much of my time on That's right, right now. Um, I mean, you know, just yesterday, I actually gave a lecture to um, our uh, local trauma symposium. So a whole bunch of pre-hospital providers, trauma nurses, social workers um, who work in the trauma space and and talked about exactly what you just said and, and what I know Mary talks about as well, as well as many other colleagues, which is this idea of really kind of shifting the paradigm and sharing my own stories. I think that when, uh, as with anything, right, when I'm open and talk about the emotional impact and also about the shift in the way I think about this as a disease, uh, it gets other folks to do so as well. And after the talk, as honestly happens after a lot of these talks, and I'm sure this is true for others in this space too, ended up having a lot of great conversations one-on-one with individual paramedics or um, social workers who are like, man, you know, I come from a family with X background, whether it's gun ownership or not gun ownership. And, and that this opened up a different way of, of talking about the problem, but also created a resolve on their part to, to share those stories. Uh, and I just think that the more that we have those conversations, again, the more that we can start to shift the popular conception and shift the popular reaction and make this so it isn't partisan. I mean, that's how we've achieved change throughout history, whether it's civil rights or gay marriage or and right now, look what we're doing around vaccines, trying to get those back into the popular conception is something that everybody should have. But it really is from those one-on-one conversations. I like that you've inserted it amongst those other extraordinary public initiatives. It, it's the same work. And we do it because it's the right thing to do. And I think the way a firm is positioned as being nonpartisan is is also wonderful. And I again, I think when we look back at the history of how this started, Gun violence becoming an issue of Democrat versus Republican. Again, it's it's a it's a false dichotomy. There's plenty of Republicans who don't own guns. There's plenty of Democrats who do. Uh, somehow turning it into that where it can be a wedge issue. Look, that's the 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 pragmatist and the cynic in me sees that that's skillful politics and it's skillful political maneuvering, but it's totally wrong. Totally. <laughs> 
um, it's we 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 can shape our opinions and find common ground separately. So, and what I'm hearing you say is, you do two things at once, where you present to a group, but then make yourself available after for people to come and confide and to share. And so that they can have that FaceTime with someone that they otherwise may not have felt that they could have or knew how to approach. Mm-hmm. I think that's accurate. And and I think, um, I mean, at, at the basis of all of this, it, why any of us are involved in medicine, it's about that human connection. Mm, and we, yeah. that's the only way that change happens is through human connections. And uh, I feel so privileged to get to have these conversations. Of course, ones like this are also awesome. Um, <laughs> that's right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> with people like you who I feel like are, you know, friends from afar, even if we haven't yet met in real life. Um, and I think that these are part of the way that we change the conversation too. Uh, it's really cool to see this language and this discussion starting to percolate through society. And, and I just, again, I have the utmost faith that we can do this, but it really does take all of us. It does. It takes, it's going to, it's going to continue to take that, I hate, I hate platitudes. I hate sort of, I hate tropes, but it's going to continue to just take that energy, I think. And that sense of we're just starting, you know, we're just learning. We're just figuring this out. We're just overcoming the official or unofficial gag rule that we didn't talk about this stuff. When I say we physicians, nurses, healthcare administrators, researchers weren't allowed to, you lose your funding or you'd lose your career if you did like that. That's just being lifted. So think about the the ground. I find optimism and excitement thinking about the ground that's already been covered because we're just starting to do this. I mean, we're not even we're not even mobilized. We're not even organized yet. There's an amazing event that happens now in in Napa County, just to the east of where I live in in Santa Rosa, and it, it's a it's an event called Rock the Ride, and it's a, a bike ride and a walk that will happen this summer to raise funds for gun violence research. Congressman Thompson is going to be the keynote speaker this year. The event was started in response to a mass shooting that happened at a veteran's home in Yountville where three uh, healthcare workers that worked at this facility were gunned down. And this is only the second year. And it's an incredible event. The website is www.rocktheride.com. It'll be on, it'll be in the show notes and, and we'll make it available as well. This is just starting. We're just paddling out. And these events are fantastic. And they get this tremendous community support. Physicians can be engaged. Health organizations can be engaged. Politicians from both sides of the aisle can be engaged. It does feel like this is just starting. Am I correct in feeling like that? Or from your perspective as someone who's been doing this for a long time, do I have some recency bias? Uh, I mean, I think it's a little of both. I think... I think this has been going on for a while, but it is snowballing and it is becoming okay. more noticeable and more acceptable. And, but I also agree that you're right, that this is just the beginning. Yeah. Um, it's not the very, very beginning, but we're like, you know, it, it, this is a few years old at this point. Um, and gosh, we have, we do have a far ways to go, but I also don't think it's an impossible lift. I think give us a few years and we're going to start to see not just a shift in the conversation, but also a shift in the patterns of injury. I like that you circled back to to the lift analogy. So as we move towards running out of time, because I need you to sleep. <laughs> I need to sleep. My patients who I'm going to see tonight overnight That's right. need me to sleep That's today. Right. What's yeah. your wish list? So you're you're one of the people who's been there from early days. A lot of us are just now stepping in. 
There's going to be more and more people engaging and getting involved, docs, nurses. We're going to be pinging each other. We're going to be helping each other kind of get into this fight. What's your wish list? What things do you want to see in the near term? What's the Megan Rainey, you know, one, three, five-year wish list? Oh, wow. That is such a fun question. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that my first wish list, my first and biggest wish is for us all to talk about it. So to keep pinging okay. each other, to keep, um, to keep the conversation going, to not let this issue fade away. You know, when there aren't big public mass shootings, I think it's easy for us to forget that 200 people are injured and a hundred people die every day across the United States. Uh, so I think it's important to restate that those are, those are insane numbers. <laughs> it, it is right. So 200 are injured uh, and actually over a hundred last year, 116 um, died every day across the United States, um, from a firearm. And it's up to us to keep that in the public eye. And I think that's my first and biggest wish list. Okay. Next one is to work towards creating evidence. And one of the things that I fear is that we make a lot of kind of gut reactions, which we've got to do something right. And sometimes we have to act without having perfect evidence. But as healthcare professionals, we need to demand that those actions become at some point accompanied by evidence because I don't want us to spend time and resources doing things that could cause harm. Um, and so the second thing is really demanding that, that evidence creation and respecting evidence where it exists and where it doesn't, um, helping to fund it um, privately and insisting on funding of it publicly. But, you know, one of the reasons we started a firm is because we felt like we just couldn't wait. Like we've been advocating for federal funding for so long. And HRE is amazing. Um, but, gosh, it still has to get through the Senate. So, so that's the second thing is, is making that call for evidence critical. And, and sometimes it means us investing in it ourselves. And then the third thing is reaching across the aisle and helping to create those partnerships. Um, you know, stuff like what Mike Thompson does things like this podcast, things like my work with my firm co-founder, who's a physician and a gun owner himself, um, I, I think are really, really critical. And I think that if we could do those three things, um, and then I'll actually add on a fourth, which is just making sure that the communities that are affected are part of the discussion, um, whether it's the communities that are affected by community violence or suicide um, or unintentional injury or, of course, mass shootings giving those victims and their families a chance to be heard as well. Um, it's not just powerful, but it's also often therapeutic. And gosh, no one knows more than them um, what's needed both to prevent these injuries from happening and to help create healing and hope. Um, so I guess those would be my four things. But that's just kind of off the top of my head, so come back I like it. The, the, <laughs> we're going to circle back in a couple of weeks, and we're going to talk again. So we'll see, we'll see where that list sits. The one thing that I would just add, too, is for people to not forget the importance of contacting their elected officials to tell them what they think. It's a huge True. driver of discourse. H.R. 8 is sitting there. It's past the House. It's not being brought to a vote in the Senate. And if we want it to be brought to a vote in the Senate, we need to contact our senators. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, it does not matter. For HR 8 or any other legislation that's important to you that's being hung up, if you, you have to lobby, you have to push them. And they, they want to be pushed. If they don't want to be pushed, they are not going to get to stay in office. And so this is the immediate one. That's the one that's right there 
one way or the other. If you are for it or against it, you should be heard. Um, if you're against HR8, there's a conversation to be had. If you're for it, you need to make your voice heard. So I would I would add that one to the milieu. This is a this is one of those conversations that's a little bit more strategic, right? This is the plenary session with Dr. Megan Ranney, and it's incredibly exciting. But we also know that when people are able to access leaders and people who drive the conversation on that individual basis or to at least learn on that individual level, it's incredibly impactful as well. So how do people learn from you? How do they find the work that you're doing? How do they find a firm? Well, they can certainly find me on Twitter. I'm there an awful lot. Yeah. Um, so, so that's part one. Uh, they can find me um, through the Affirm website, which is www.affirmresearch.org. Um, would love to have you reach out. Um, feel free to email us. Um, certainly love to have folks involved. That is how we create change. Um, and then you can find me at various events across the country. Um, that's right. Talking about this. And, and I'm just always happy uh, to connect with folks who are equally passionate um, and with folks who just need to talk because I find a lot of us have these really personal experiences, either from the clinical space or outside of the clinical space. You know, statistically, a lot of us have friends and families, family members who've been um, affected by gun violence. And uh, I'm, I'm here for that, too. Um, and and just to everybody that's listening, know that you're supported by, by a huge group and a growing group. Uh, it's it's really my honor to get to do this work and, and to help others to do it too. It's extraordinary to watch you work. It's been a total privilege to speak with you. I'm glad that we have people like you. I'm excited to see more, right? You're not going to do this yourself. I'm excited to see more and more and more people picking up the flag and, and moving along alongside you and keeping, keeping this, keeping this on the front burner and, and driving towards change. Megan, this is extraordinary. You're my kind of leader. Not only are you doing it on social media, not only are you doing it in front of the camera, you are leading from the front. You just finished a shift in the ED and you're back again tonight. I'll let you go get go home and get some sleep, but thank you so much. This has really been extraordinary. Thank you, Mark. It is an absolute honor. And I uh, just to shout right back out at you, um, this, your leadership matters to you. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.